joining the online worship service of Waynesboro Grace. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples making disciples. For more information about our church, you can find us online at waynesborograce.org or on Facebook at Waynesboro Grace. Well, hey, Grace, it is good to be with you again. And uh, if you joined us last week out at Tick Ridge, I... Hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. It was good to be together again. And we're still doing these videos, pre-recording them for some of you that may just not be comfortable yet. And that's okay. We don't want to force anyone to do something they're not comfortable with. Uh, and so these videos are a way for us to still meet you and, and, and have you spend time with the Lord and His Word and, and song uh, before and until you're comfortable to gather again. As we begin to transition back into the building, we're going to have the opportunity to just record the Sunday morning element. And uh, we're still trying to figure out if that'll include music and the preaching. Um, so we need to figure out some tech things and, and what, what we can do. Um, but we'll be digging into that over the next couple days and uh, we'll be putting those up on YouTube like we have been these pre-recorded videos. Um, so uh, we're in that period of transition where we're still a little bit pre-recording, still a little bit gathering together, aiming and having eyes looking forward to being back together again. And so um, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 45 and we'll be doing so on June 21st when we gather together, uh, weather permitting at Tick Ridge, but because we're in the green now, um, if the weather is uh, such where we can't be out there, we'll just be back in the building and uh, have the building ready to go for that as well. But Psalm 45 is what we're going to be looking at. And um, if you've read this psalm yet, or if you've ever read this psalm, you may you may be wondering why it's in the Psalter. And that's not a bad question. And as we talked about last week, we want to be people that are willing to ask hard questions. We're not always guaranteed to get an answer, but we want to be people that are willing to ask hard questions. And so why is this in the Psalter is, is a good question to ask. It's, it's a love poem. It's a poem. It's a song about a wedding. In fact, it's a song about a wedding day. And it's written by these sons of Korah, who were the, the songwriters. And they were writing the music for the choir master to lead the choir and then, by extension, the nation in song. And what that all presumes is that the nation was supposed to sing this. This was supposed to be a song sung. And here it is included into the Psalter as one of the 150 songs that are canonized and given to us then throughout the generations as part of Scripture. But this psalm depicts the scenario or the, the festivities of the wedding day when the culmination of the bride and the groom would take place, when they would come together and they would begin to celebrate. And I, I found myself thinking through, okay, well, what's the point for us? Uh, we don't live in a kingdom. We don't celebrate the marriage of the king or the queen the way this psalm certainly depicts the celebration of the king to his queen. What's the point 
for us. And just on the outset, on the front side of looking at this psalm together, I would suggest three reasons that get after the point for us. One's to celebrate the marriage of the king, to see that the nation of Israel was led collectively by the temple singers as part of their worship even, to celebrate the marriage of the king. They, as a theocracy, that being a a form of government leadership that came from God himself, um, certainly would have had a king anointed by the Lord. That itself bears witness in this psalm. And so there are some things different between the nation of Israel and the country of the United States or the country of Canada or the country of Mexico or whatever country we might pick, but they celebrated the marriage of the king. Um, We, I think, also can see how God views marriage. Think back to what I just referred to. This is a song to be sung in the temple as part of the worship of this nation that worshiped Yahweh. We get a view as to what he thinks about marriage by the fact that this is included in the scripture that he authored and the inspiration that he, by his spirit, led the sons of Korah to write this psalm with. Thirdly, and this was where we kind of pull in the New Testament aspect and how the New Testament gives us further revelation about the picture of marriage. It's not the first place that marriage is referred to as a picture of the relationship between God and His people, but it perhaps is the clearest. And there we see this pointing towards a greater covenant. A greater, celebra- a greater celebration that marriage points to, that marriage is intended to reflect. And so really, in, in regardless of where you might find yourself on the landscape of married or unmarried or waiting to be married or been married and no longer married, wherever you might find yourself, because certainly there are those within our midst who would fit in all of those categories, we can still respond in the way the psalmist intends. We can still be those who uphold and celebrate the covenant of marriage as God celebrates the covenant of marriage. We can be those that see the picture of marriage pointing to a greater reality of that being the picture of Christ and His church, God and His people. So we're going to try to make some sense of this psalm together as we go. And before we go any further, let's spend some time praying, and then we'll open Psalm 45 together. Would you join me? God in heaven, we ask that you would come and you would teach us, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to think, eyes to see, help us to see what there is to see, help us to see what you want us to see. God, we want to understand your word, and we believe that you have spoken and that it is in our best interest to draw near and listen. So God, we pray that you would help us listen, and we pray that you would speak clearly. And God, I pray for my words, that they wouldn't in any way get in the way, that they wouldn't be confusing, that they would be accurate to what it is that you have said. God, and as we think of this expression of this event that so many of us have attended before, several of us have experienced personally before. God, may we 
get a, get a fresh glimpse and understanding of what you view marriage to be and how you celebrate the marriage covenant. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, grab them and head to Psalm 45. You're going to see in the beginning that it is addressed to the choir master, according to the lilies. Now, that phrase, according to the lilies, is perhaps setting this psalm to a particular song. Uh, We're just inferring, and there's some conjecture going on there, but that phrase, the lily, shows up a couple different times, and it may have been a direct reference to a particular tune that was to be sung. We don't know for sure, but it's possible nonetheless. As we have seen in the last two weeks, this is another masculine. It's a contemplative psalm, but here we should note that contemplative does not have to mean sad. Contemplative really just means thoughtful. And you can be sad and thoughtful, and perhaps we most often or naturally think of the word contemplative as pensive or sad, but here it is absolutely celebratory. It is written by the sons of Korah who have written the psalms that we have looked at thus far in book two together, and here we are told it is a love song. And just thinking through some of the big picture aspects of this, that the Psalms are songs for life and living. And over the last couple of weeks, we looked at hope for the hurting and bad for the good. Why, why do bad things happen to God's people was our question last week. And in that regard, if the Psalms are songs for living, we should not be surprised that there's a song about love and marriage. And perhaps we might just be able to conclude that Psalm 45 is a bit more PG when compared to the Song of Solomon. There are those who actually believe that the Song of Solomon is referring to Solomon's first marriage to an Egyptian princess that 1 Kings chapter 3 outlines in just about one or two verses. There's not, a much, there's not a lot there, but that being a collection of love songs to that first wife of his before things get a little squirrely. Psalm 45 therein would have been the, the, the song being written about that wedding day. We don't know these things for certain, but if you look in the psalm and think of its comparison to the Song of Solomon, it's far less explicit, perhaps one that we would be much more comfortable with our children spending some time learning. And there maybe is one phrase or word that that begins to tend towards a PG-13 designation, but By and large, and in contrast to the Song of Psalms, it's a whole lot more approachable for the family and perhaps part of what God intends. In fact, in some of the studying that that I did on the Song of Solomon in preparation for a sermon series, believe it or not, when we were at Community Grace, was that the, the, the conventional wisdom of those in Israel was that you didn't let your children read the Song of Solomon. That was reserved for those who were married. That's probably still sage advice for us today. But Psalm 45 is absolutely 
approachable. And this psalm helps us see that there should not be a divide between the sacred and secular. There's not, there's not like ch- church things in our life and non-church things in our life. There's not God things in our lives and non-God things in our lives. There's not things we worship through in our lives and things that are just kind of things that happen in our lives. And we've tried to capture that reality. It's a biblical reality. We've tried to capture that as a church by articulating part of our vision to include Christ-centered worship, that all of life is worship. Whether it's here on a Sunday morning, which we haven't done yet in a few months, but we did it outdoors at Tick Ridge last week, or it's what you do at your job, where you grocery shop, where you spend your recreational time, absolutely and most certainly how you love your wife, how you love your husband, how you parent your children, all of life is worship. We don't divide life between the sacred and secular, between the God things and the non-God things, between the things we worship through and the things that we just do. And I think Psalm 45 is a, a continuance of that idea. And so we see in this psalm a celebration of marriage. And the psalmist begins, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I will address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And there he introduces the fact that he is bursting with emotion. The psalmist, as he's writing, one of these sons of Korah, as he is writing, is saying, my heart is full. And we, we, don't, we don't appreciate this, perhaps, the way those within a monarchy might appreciate this. It was not too long ago that the English monarchy had a couple weddings that took place, and we as Americans watched from a distance, some more closely than others, but watched nonetheless the arrangements and the festivities and the celebrations of those weddings. And there was much fanfare, far greater fanfare than any of our elected officials would receive. And we as Americans don't quite get our minds wrapped around the reality of a monarchy and how big of a deal it would have been to celebrate the wedding of a king. But here the psalmist is saying, I'm overflowing with joy. My heart is bursting with a pleasing theme. And here it's as if he almost cannot contain his lyrical poetry as he's putting quill to paper to write what it is that is on his heart. And the psalm begins then in praise for the king. And it's interesting as this psalm is written, it reflects the reality of the wedding festivities of the day and even those that we see carry forward into the first century as articulated in some of the gospels and the parables that Jesus taught. And so there would have been a betrothal period, which was a very formal and legally binding period of time that we might think of as an engagement period, but you didn't just take off the ring and give it back to end the engagement and then cancel your reservations or end your website. You, you had legally binding oaths that had been taken. And this is why Joseph, when he finds that Mary's pregnant, we're told that he resolved to divorce her quietly. They had not yet lived together. They had not yet consummated this betrothal, this marriage they were pledged 
two, but they were legally bound to one another. And then there would have been a delay between the beginning of the betrothal period and the actual wedding day. But then on the wedding day, a, a series of events would have happened. The, the bride would be getting ready at her house with her attendants. The groom would be at his house with his attendants. Uh, similarly, in some of our modern traditions, the bride would have a room where she would be with her bridesmaids. The groom would have a room where he would be with his groomsmen. I mean, that in some ways isn't just for propriety's sake, although there's good reasons for those things to happen in separate rooms. There would be the, the, the getting ready with those closest to you, but then the groom would set off and head over to the bride's house. We're not told how far of a distance that would be, but the groom would go get his bride, and then he would arrive at the house, and the bride would come out with her attendants, and then they would parade back through the streets together as one large bridal party, and the groom would take his bride into his home, and there they would have a celebration, a feast that would last a week, if not two. It's perhaps in the course of those events that Jesus performs his first miracle. We know it's at a wedding. We know it's at Cana. We know they run out of wine. We don't know how long into the wedding festivities they might have been, but we know that he turns water into wine, and John tells us that this is the first of the many things that Jesus did, the many signs that Jesus did, displaying his glory and his power and his divinity. And so this psalm takes that flavor. It, it walks through those festivities. And here, as the king is being first addressed and being celebrated, we see that he is celebrated because of God's blessing on his life. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, verse 2. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. The psalm begins praising the king for God's blessing. And here, most simply, we are told the king is good-looking and he is well-spoken. Then the king is given a command, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. The idea of gird there, the command there, is dress yourself, O king, O mighty one. I, I think the idea that the psalmist is writing is articulating that it's time for the king to put on his military uniform. I've never personally been to a military wedding, but I've seen pictures, and it, it's pretty impressive. And I know some of you in our church have had such a formal wedding where you were a part of a military ceremony. And there's a formality and, and just, quite frankly, an awesomeness to that with the, the swords and the dress uniforms that come about. And I think that's what the psalmist is saying. King, it's time to get dressed. Put on your best military outfit. Put on your dress whites. Strap that sword on. It's time to go get your gal. And the king is praised for his good looks, for being well-spoken. The king's praised for his work as a king here. And the description in verses 4 and 5 actually echoes the charge that Adam was given by God in the garden in Genesis 2.15 to work and to keep. 
And we see the idea of working, of developing, of bringing to flourishing articulated in verse 4. We see the idea of keeping articulated in verse 5. There in 4, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. The king is supposed to work as all men have been charged by God. We're supposed to develop. We're supposed to bring to flourishing. We're supposed to create. And here, the king is to ride out victoriously for the cause of truth or fairness or faithfulness. He's to ride out for the cause of meekness. That would be humility. And thirdly, for the cause of righteousness, doing what is right. God has blessed the king not just with good looks and charisma and charm and military prowess, but he now commands the king to be faithful and to be humble and to be committed to what is right. The king's praised in verse 5 for his keeping, his protecting, his guarding of his kingdom. Your arrows are sharp and the heart of the king's enemy, the people's fall under you. The idea there is there's protection, there's guarding, there's safety, there's, there's keeping that takes place because of the king's fulfillment of what he is required to do. In verses 6 and 7, the psalmist breaks from addressing the king to now addressing the king of kings. Your throne of God is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Here God is praised because of the king that he has anointed to the throne. That king is commended for his truth, for his meekness, for his righteousness. He's commended for keeping and for guarding and protecting. And here God is praised and celebrated and ascribed glory because of the king that he has appointed and anointed to the throne. This set of verses is picked up in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1 to refer specifically to Jesus. And there in the context of Hebrews, the idea is that Jesus is greater than the angels. And so regardless of how great the angels are, here Jesus is greater and his throne is forever and ever. The same point is made in Psalm 45. Regardless of how great the king is, the king of kings is greater. And so the king, Jesus, the king, Yahweh, God, is praised. And there in the tail end of verse 7, we see that, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your comparison. Perhaps that's a reference to coronation day, when the king was anointed and coronated as king. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Those were scents associated with the celebration of marriage. And this might be the one of the areas that we get close to the idea of a wedding night and the aromas that might have been included where the king put on his best cologne. Those are probably the contemporary references. 
From ivory places stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. The idea is, is that there's music celebrating. You're in ornate AID, or you're in ornate buildings. There's ivory coated places. The gold of Ophir was a region. Ophir was a region known for fine gold. The idea here is just the immaculate aspect of the celebration. The king is praised. He's praised for his kingship. He's praised for his scented clothing. He smells good. He's praised for his respect among the nations. Next, in verse 10, the queen is celebrated for her beauty and the fanfare surrounding her entrance to the palace. And here one commentator writes that this verse and these verses stand as an important counterpart to the command in Genesis 2.24 that a, a man should leave his father and mother. Here we see the queen being instructed to leave her home. The idea there is that there would be this new one flesh unit where we use the words leave and cleave to describe that, where two have become one, where there's now something inseparable, where there had been separation, and that should be a part of all aspects of their life and their union and their covenant marriage together. The instructions given to the bride begin in verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider... Incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. The instructions there begin with that the queen is to leave her people. Perhaps if this was the Egyptian princess that 1 Kings chapter 3 outlines, then she's leaving her nation. Solomon is taking her to himself as his bride, perhaps his first bride, and she is instructed here by the writer of this psalm to pledge allegiance to her new nation. This is in some ways the who gives this woman to be married to this man moment, where the wife or the bride at this point is given by the father and whomever else he may name to the groom. That's what's taking place here. Perhaps another way to think of it would be what Solomon's great-grandmother Ruth would have done, where she told her mother-in-law, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. There is a leaving and a cleaving that begins and happens, and a definitive breaking from the family that was to now the family that is. The instructions continue, since he is your Lord, bow to him. Now, let's just pause there for a moment because that phrase is going to grate against modern sensibilities. It's going to grate against perhaps um, what we might naturally define these words to be. And I just want to take a moment and briefly outline here that I believe the idea is that the primary responsibility of this bride, of this daughter, of this woman is being transferred from the father to the husband, to the groom. So let's just kind of take that a few steps further. All right. This is not 
worship. Yes, the word Lord does occur, but you probably can see in your Bible that it is not capitalized, at least in the ESV translation, it is not capitalized. And the word Adonai is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to not God. That is one of God's names. It is one of the ways God is named and one of the ways that we understand who God is. But there are places in the Old Testament where that is not the case. I think this is probably one of them. The psalmist is not instructing the bride to worship her husband. This is not unequivocal surrender of a woman to a man because she's a woman. I think if we look from beginning to end, the scriptures elevate women. Yes, they are set and written amongst the backdrop of a society that was highly patriarchal and might have even found creative ways to abuse women, but think we can see in the scriptures the celebration, the cherishing, and the protection of women. We may not understand all of the Old Testament laws that center around and give guidance to the relationships of husbands and wives as outlined in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but I believe the idea of protection there is at heart. So this is not the unequivocal surrender of a woman to a man because she's a woman. In fact, in the New Testament where the language of submission is used in relationship to the husband and wife relationship, it is only ever used specifically restricting that word submission to a wife and her own husband, not women to men, not a wife to all men. There's something unique about this relationship. Thirdly, this is the establish of a new the establishment of a new marriage covenant that is to be patterned and designed after the intent that God created marriage with. So the New Testament gives us a little bit more helpful information about what that pattern looks like. So the bride's example of submission is the church. The groom's example of love and leadership is Jesus neither one of which is found and perhaps perfectly illustrated in the American stereotypes of gender roles or societal norms. And so we need to work hard at not confusing biblical roles with American gender roles. I've said a lot about that in other sermons, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to say too much about it right now. But we're not talking about the unequivocal worship or surrender of a woman to a man. We're talking about a new union, a new covenant relationship being enacted. Verse 12, the instruction continues, The people of Tyre will seek your favor with the richest of people. The king will, or the queen will be celebrated amongst the regions that surround them. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, the psalmist continues, with robes interwoven with gold. Here, I believe, the psalmist is saying she's still at home. In verse 14, I think the meeting has occurred. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. That would be her bridesmaids. And in verse 15, they are returning back to 
the palace. They are parading through the town. They are walking home in joyful celebration. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. And we see then the celebration commence. A week, more than likely two weeks if this was Solomon involved. I mean, quite frankly, in 1 Kings chapter 4, the outline and articulation there is is that this dude knew how to throw a party and did so with great opulence. It's probably a two-week festival at the least. Verses 16 and 17, we see a prayer of blessing given. Again, this is an articulation of what God views marriage to be, and quite frankly, this might have been a loose quotation of God. There's no quotation marks in our Bibles. However, the way these Hebrew words are written, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for the psalmist to be the I that is written of, because that I is said to cause some actions. And the sons of Korah are not going to cause the descendants of the king and the queen to be remembered in all generations, although God can. He's fully capable of doing so. And so, in verse 16, "...in the place of your fathers shall be your son." There's the idea of throne and descendants and generational continuance. Now, we know from 1 Kings 11, Solomon lost the throne because he let his heart be led astray because of his his immoral, illicit desires that then led to the uniting of him with wives and concubines that did not worship the Lord, that did not leave their people and their father's house, and led to all manner of wickedness. And the kingdom was stripped from him. It became divided by his descendants. And that was a, it was a, it was a judgment on Solomon's inability or lack of obedience to the rules and commands that he was given as a king. But here the blessing is invoked. You will make them princes in all the earth. It is true Solomon's sons were princes, even though they weren't princes of a unified kingdom. It became a divided kingdom, and the north and the southern kingdoms emerged from there. In verse 17, the psalmist writes, I believe, speaking of God, or if not for God, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And so again, the why. Why this psalm? Why us and this psalm in this summer? Well, in part, because there's the celebration of marriage. And I think we get a glimpse into the heart of God and what He intends marriage to be understood as. And what He thinks about it. And how highly He prized the marriage covenant and the marriage celebration, if not even the marriage day, that there would be in the songbook of the nation of Israel a song to sing about the marriage relationship of the king and the queen. God thinks marriage is a big deal. He's got a lot to say about marriage. If nothing else, the implied takeaway is that you and I should think of marriage is a big deal. We should think of our own marriages as a big deal. We should do everything and anything that we can to celebrate and to strengthen our marriages. We should do anything and everything that we can to celebrate and strengthen the marriages of others because it's a big deal. 
And ultimately, marriage points forward to the relationship that Jesus has with His church, the relationship that God has with His people. And Ephesians 5 outlines that for us. That's where the the articulation of wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, and husbands love your wives as the as Christ loved the church are given. Marriage is a big deal. God celebrates it. It ultimately points forward to a greater covenant. It's a pattern. It's an analogy that points our gaze and our understanding for what God has done and what He does in Jesus for His people. But to this end, if marriage is this big of a deal, if it's how God has designed things from the beginning to be, and if it is that picture of the church and its Savior, we should not be surprised that it is under attack. And it has been under attack since Genesis chapter 3. And that's part of where we can proactively celebrate, honor, cherish, support, encourage marriage because it is under attack. And marriage and the family unit have been, been, been sought after and in the crosshairs of, of the evil one, Satan, since the very beginning. I believe that's what takes place first and foremost in Genesis chapter 3. It works itself out in some temptations, some disobedience, and therein some consequences that follow. God thinks marriage is a big deal. It points to the relationship that Jesus has with His church, that God has with His people. You and I should equally think marriage is a big deal. Let's pray. God, help us to do that. Help us to celebrate this reality, this marriage covenant, the way you celebrate it. Help us to see and and, and honor and cherish and support those that we know are married, and to do so in our own lives. God, may, may us as, as men be those that ride out for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, that we would be faithful, that we would be humble, and that we would be those who do what is right. God, help us to honor and cherish our wives. God, God would you pray, and I, I pray that you would help us men and women alike, to honor and celebrate this this beautiful union that you have created in the way and after the pattern that you celebrate it and give honor to it. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.